0: On Fuzzy Logic. We are talking about regeneration. How does new things come about when uh, they're not there anymore? We're going to explore that all throughout the biological world today right here for your science on a Sunday. This is Fuzzy Logic. Good morning Canberra. My name is Broderick and it's a pleasure to have you with us this morning on Fuzzy Logic. Thanks very much to Irish Voice for their show in the hour beforehand. Were you tuning in to hear that uh, Stairway to Heaven original? Yeah, I think there was a lot of inspiration taken from that one. Uh, But now we're not moving into the world of Irish uh, culture and Irish music, but we're moving into the world of science Uh, But today in The Science Show, we are looking at copies. Uh, Well, not so much copies, but regeneration. And the many different ways things regenerate. And some of the latest uh, science around things regenerating and renewing as well. Uh, So we're going to get right into that today here on the show. And uh, it's pretty exciting stuff uh, indeed. To start with, I want to talk about regeneration of the brain Uh, because the brain is one of those areas that we've looked at many, many times and many, many pieces of research have been completed around the brain, but it's a really interesting organ to study because, of course, uh, it's uh, difficult to study someone's brain uh, in situ. It's hard to image what's going on, so we have to do a lot of work around uh, either non-human brains or working with the brains of dead people, uh, which is uh, something that can be donated through places like the Brain Bank, and I know there's one in South Australia, and there's probably more all around the place. Um, But one of the biggest studies that people look at when they're looking at brains is can your brain regenerate? Now, it's an interesting idea because I think we've all heard uh, before that uh, once brain cells are gone, they're gone for good. And that's uh, what happens. Um, But over the last few years, some new research has come out to show that our brain can change. And now there's some even newer research that's showing that it might be able to regenerate. Now, brain changing has come about previously because we've been talking about brain plasticity and that sort of thing. And that means it's basically molding to a new situation. So often when people have suffered uh, brain damage uh, in one area of the brain that plays a certain role in our thinking, um, when they uh, have then slowly developed over time, they've developed the skills that exist in that area of the brain in other areas of their brain instead. So they've actually changed and modified their brain to for other parts to play the role that's needed, which is an amazing use of the brain tissue that's there and the brain cells that are about, but it also also shows that uh, the brain hasn't been regenerating with uh, with what's there instead. But in this new research that's been coming out, uh, recently published in uh, the publication Cell Stem Cell, uh, it suggests that a healthy person, even in their 70s, is going to keep churning out new brain cells through a process called neurogenesis. And the rate that an older person continues to create these new brain cells is actually comparable to a teenager, which is kind of amazing when you think about it. And, uh, but the, the other side to this story is that a paper published recently in Nature has claimed the exact opposite of that, that uh, after hitting adulthood, uh, neuron production grinds to a halt. So which of these about brain regeneration is actually true? Well... Let's take a look at what these papers are looking at. Uh, They're focusing on the hippocampus, which is a curved structure, just a few centimetres long, tucked away deep in the brain, and uh, it's responsible for creating new memories. Uh, So that's the part of our brain where we get new memories. And so uh, it does... uh, It's uh, where we store those memories right in there. And the research teams that were looking at that concentrated on an area uh, where the hippocampus receives a lot of inbound information. Uh, So that's where all the new ideas are coming in, all the new uh, input from around us gets fed into that part of the hippocampus. It's called the dentate gyrus, and it's one of the few brain areas where neurogenesis, this creation of new brain cells, was actually found in adult rats. So it's, it's a very interesting area of the brain and certainly one where we could um, look in, uh, in adult humans as well. Now, each of these research groups did follow a different protocol as they uh, as they went through the brain and uh, the way brain tissue is preserved and stained contributes to how well we actually see the cells that are in there and what's going on. So this is one possible source of how these two researchers, uh, research studies might differ um, One staining system for staining the brain cells might not be sensitive enough. Another might work too well. Uh, So there's background noise, false positives, lots of different things going on. Now, normally when uh, neuroscientists stain brains, uh, they drop the fresh brain tissue into chemicals and, and fix it. Um, and this basically holds everything in place and keeps the cell uh, architecture there so they can see what's actually gone on here uh, because once uh, a brain is being looked at, generally, well, not generally, always, the person has passed away uh, if they've got the brain out and they're cutting it up. Um, and so uh, there's some degeneration that's going to happen in this place over time. And so fixation helps keep all that to stay the same as they go through. Um now, in, this, in the cell stem cell study that did uh, showcase neurogenesis, uh, scientists at Columbia University in New York actually flash-froze tissue samples first. So that's quite distinct from how most people do it, um, so that's another difference. But potentially flash-freezing helps keep things as they were um, by freezing it super quickly, super fast, um, to, to make things stay as they are. Uh, The other difference that's potential between the two studies is the brains themselves and the people who donated them to science. Uh, The Columbia study counted newly formed neurons in the entire hippocampus of 28 healthy donors, aged from 14 to 79 shortly after they died. Uh, The Nature paper, which was done in San Francisco, also assessed uh, post-mortem brain tissue alongside some samples taken directly from patients with epilepsy who were having brain surgery. There you go. I missed that one. You can have uh, your brain studied uh, even if you are still alive, Um, but it's quite rare. And uh, from this paper, which didn't find neurogenesis, uh, a total of 59 different brains were studied, uh, which ranged from fetuses to a 77-year-old. And the San Francisco team detected plenty of new cell growth in the youngest brains, but none at all in people over the age of 18. And so this kind of sticks with what current thinking is and goes directly against the study from Columbia University in New York. But, of course, the problem in this is people, Uh, and that is that people uh, vary quite uh, quite, uh, differently from animal studies and people vary between each other as well. So, most research at this stage into neurogenesis has been in animals, and uh, 99.9%, in fact, of what we know about this is from the animal models. Uh, So... There's, um, there's not much evidence around people and what, that, what happens in people. Uh, in animal models, it has been shown that uh, neurogenesis declines pretty sharply after middle age in mice and also in non-human primates. So we're talking about monkeys there. But of course, these animals aren't human. And even though we are quite similar in terms of our genome and that sort of thing, uh, there is a lot of uh, differences there between us. Uh, And researchers can't just crack open someone's skull and uh, start peering into the brain and uh, looking at what's going on in there. So they have to wait for people to pass away. And uh, locating brain stem cells in post-mortem hippocampi is notoriously difficult. The fresher the brain is, the better, so you have to act pretty quickly, um, which can often be a difficult thing when someone's just passed away to try and isolate that brain pretty soon, which is why it's... um Good if you are interested in those sorts of things in in terms of donating your body to science to make sure you talk to the scientists and the people involved at the various research institutions but also talk to your family too and let them know that that's something you want to do uh, so that it can happen quickly if you do pass away suddenly because it's a difficult time for everyone but if you can take some positives out of that by donating your body to science then that's a fantastic thing to come from it. So look, overall in this study... um, it's safe to say that the question of adult neurogenesis, that is creating new brain cells, is still open. Um, in relation to the study out of Columbia, scientists are cautious about overstating the results. Um, and so it's, it's going to be something that we, uh, we keep an eye on. But certainly for things like Alzheimer's, where one of the first areas destroyed in the brain in Alzheimer's is the hippocampus, it's, uh, it's certainly going to play a role in helping with that research. So it's an interesting idea, the human adult brain regenerating itself even as we get older. Whether it's the case or not, well, there's a whole lot more research that needs to be done. Um, But certainly it would be quite interesting to see if we can find out about that regeneration. Let's stop for a quick song break now. And then after the break, I might bring uh, one of my co-presenters into the studio today. And that was Vampire Weekend there with their song 1, in brackets, Blake's Got a New Face. The time is 11.20. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 98.3 FM, 2XX Community Radio, broadcasting across Canberra, online at 2XXFM.org.au. And you might even be listening to us on the Fuzzy Logic podcast, in which case it isn't the 8th of April anymore, but... Um, but thank you very much for downloading. If you haven't downloaded our podcast before, you can find us on uh, the iTunes store. Just type in Fuzzy Logic and look for the autumn leaf there. That's us. Or you can head to Fuzzy Logic on 2xx.podbean.com to subscribe to it in other ways. That's Fuzzy Logic on 2xx.podbean.com to find us there. On today's show, we're talking about regeneration and we started off by talking about how the brain might might regenerate itself there's some interesting research going on in there but uh, as i started looking at regeneration uh, i found uh, a story on some new species that have just been discovered out in the south in the uh, indo-pacific um, region and uh, these species actually have a really interesting way of regenerating i was told and so i've brought in my marine expert to talk about this and uh, this is is the wonderful Jill. Good morning, Jill. morning, Brad. Uh, now, you are a big fan of nudibranchs, aren't oh, you?
1: massive. Love them.
0: Yeah, so this is what's been discovered recently out in the Indo-Pacific. They've discovered about 18 new species of these wonderful creatures, which are kind of like sea slugs, but they're a special version of the sea slug. Can you tell us what's special about a nudibranch?
1: Well... For one, they're cute. Um, I think that's the most special thing. (laughs) And that's
0: not a uh, descriptor you'd normally find about a sea slug, about a slug in general. Uh, So I guess uh, why are these ones so cute?
1: So the nudibranchs um, are actually very brightly coloured, but that's not what defines them as nudibranchs because there are quite brightly coloured sea slugs as well. So nudibranchs are a type of sea slug, but what makes them different is actually in their name. So, nudie, meaning naked, um, and brank, forming from branchia meaning gills. So, they've actually got naked gills. So, the nudie branks, um, they have their gills on the outside of their body, whereas a lot of other ones you can't see. So, you'll often see nudie branks. They look like a slug. They're quite brightly colored, quite beautiful, and then they've got like a little fluff on the back of them, like a little tail almost, like a little fluff of tail, and that's actually their gills poking out from their body.
0: Yeah, it kind of looks like, um, like if you imagine the alveoli in your lungs that kind of extend like through your lungs, it kind of looks like that, except poking out into the air. Um, that into the sort the water. of into the water. <laughs> yes, sorry, they do live in the water. These underwater <laughs> creatures. Kills. Yeah, um, yeah, they're quite beautiful and diverse creatures. Um, you know, the, we've uh, spotted them diving many times, and huge range of colours that they come in. Um, and size wise, what what sizes do they come in?
1: So they can be quite from like a few millimeters up to probably about up to 30 centimeters. I think the largest one is the Spanish Dancer nudibranch, which is a, quite a bright red, almost disc-shaped nudibranch when you look at it, if it's lying flat on the seafloor, which it doesn't often do. But what it mostly does is it swims through the ocean and it does a sort of undulating motion and that round, the edges of the disc actually flap and it looks a lot like A dancer and dancing and kind of, you know, flying through the ocean.
0: Very impressive. But, yeah, most of them are kind of small slug-like sized. If you think of your common garden slug, they're about that size, if not a little bigger. Uh, and they, yeah,
1: some a few small uh, yeah variety
0: yeah, and uh, a range of different colours. But today's episode is about regeneration. So the the interesting thing is about how these creatures. Uh, well, I'll talk about the interesting research recently from them. But how do these creatures regenerate? How do we make new nudibranchs?
1: Yeah, I was going to wouldn't really call it regeneration. It would be more reproduction. Mm. Um, so nudibranchs are actually really interesting in the way they reproduce. They are hermaphrodites. So they have both male and female parts. And when two nudibranchs meet up and mate, they'll actually mate with each other. So they will both insert their penises into the other one. Right. So they have... So, you know, nudibranch A inserts their penis into nudibranch B, and nudibranch B inserts their penis into nudibranch A, and they both come off pregnant. Okay. And lay eggs.
0: Yeah, and that's a really interesting uh, form of reproduction there, I guess, because it's uh, not like... um Uh, they're not asexual, uh, which can often lead to problems in terms of genetic diversity. Um, So with them impregnating each other, uh, they uh, do get a a diverse genetic uh, output from that.
1: Yeah, save Uh, a lot of time.
0: Yeah, but everyone just gets pregnant.
1: Yeah, and there's (laughs) lots of eggs everywhere and lots of... Hopefully lots of nudibranchs everywhere.
0: (laughs) What a very different way to reproduce. Uh, Crazy, crazy. Um, Well, the other interesting thing about nudibranchs too is that uh, generally, like a lot of these smaller creatures, I guess they can be a good indicator for marine health too. If you have a healthy uh, reef system or a healthy marine environment, um, you're going to... nudibranch presence uh, can often be an indicator of that if there's nudibranchs in that region um, with high numbers. Is that right?
1: Yeah, well, there's a lot of animals that can be quite indicative of a healthy ecosystem, and often the smaller animals are that sort of indicator, you know, canary in the coal mine kind of thing, because, um, yeah, they're gonna, because they're small, they're going to feel those changes a lot quicker.
0: Yeah, very interesting. Well, scientists recently have been studying uh, these creatures off the, um, the West Australian coast in that uh, Indo-Pacific region, um, and they've recently discovered 18 new species of these sea slugs. Uh, the lead researcher, um, Cara Layton, has been studying them for f- almost four years, uh, which is uh, an amazing amount of time to be studying these underwater creatures. Um, and she, her, she's quoted as saying, they've been understudied compared to other things. They're tiny little slugs that are found on shallow subtidal areas, and a lot of people don't know about them if you're not in the underwater community. But they're really important, they're incredibly diverse and they make up a part of our shallow subtidal ecosystems. And so the reason they're studying them at the moment is to try and get a good understanding of biodiversity in in an area in general uh, and looking at some of the smaller animals, not just the big charismatic animals that most people know about, like some of the bigger fish or uh, sharks, whales, sea lions, whatever the bigger creatures are that you want to find in a region. Um, and so this research has come out from the University of Western Australia, along with the WA Museum and also the California Academy of Sciences. Um, and together they're building a big data set of these uh, nudibranchs. Of the newly discovered uh, creatures, Only uh, two of them have been found only in WA, which is uh, pretty cool to find these region-specific nudibranchs. Uh, they are quite large too compared to some other slugs. And uh, despite the fact they're quite colourful, they're often quite difficult to find. Uh, one species of nudibranch, an orange-striped one, found in Port Hedland in the northwest of uh, WA, was so rare it had only been seen in a photo taken many years ago. Uh, but now they've managed to find some more and classify it there. Interestingly, most of these uh, creatures are actually toxic um, because they don't have a shell to protect them, so they use toxic chemicals instead. And when a predator comes along to eat them, they're pretty distasteful, so they'll probably spit them out.
1: Yeah, and most of them actually don't produce the toxin themselves. They There are some types of sea snails and nudibranchs that actually will um, eat other toxic animals and steal their toxin, essentially. So wow. they'll steal it and it'll actually transfer through them and into their bodies and they'll use their toxin for them. And that's what the bright colours are often indicating is that toxic nature. So bright colours in the oceans, particularly colours are used to indicate, you know, toxicity, danger, those sorts of things because they can't communicate with sounds as much as land animals can.
0: Mm, And it's interesting, the colour indicating that toxicity because uh, over time uh, some species have actually changed colour to mimic those of other species in the same area that are in much greater abundance Uh, so if a species is uh, quite abundant in one area and predators know that that species is toxic another uh, species with different colours might slowly start to change to similar colours of the abundant species over time uh, because that helps protect it from the predators because the predators know that those coloured those uh, nudibranchs are toxic. So it's quite interesting. You've got a, a species that's slowly starting to look more like an existing species despite the fact that they're quite two quite different uh, species themselves.
1: Oh, mm. yeah, so speciating the, in an interesting way.
0: That's right. That's right. Coming to uh, to be more the same rather than differentiating. Yeah. Uh, which and then is... that
1: becomes difficult in terms of determining... I mean, when you've got a holotype for a species and you've picked up the one that you're like, this is the one for that species, and then over many, many years they change quite dramatically. So you, you then... said a,
0: a holotype
1: there. What's a holotype, Jill? So a holotype is when you're defining a species... The one, that's the one that actually you described from. So when a scientist, so these 18 new species, if they only found one of each, that one that they've described, so they have to, when a scientist finds a new species, they have to write a description and then they have to send it in um, and have it accepted along with the name of the species. The one that they wrote the description about is the holotype. So that's the one that defines what that species is.
0: Okay. Yeah, so that would be interesting to you. Yeah, definitely see how that changes over time and becomes uh, more and more different. Yeah. Indeed. Indeed. Well, really interesting story there coming out of Western Australia. Um, But let's move on to another story now. Let's take a look at another animal story while we're in the animal kingdom. And uh, recent research coming out from Canada, they've been looking at how eggs crack. Uh which is, you know, On your well, head. Well yeah, that's right. That is one way you can crack an yep. egg. Um Mind you, you should always do it on the side of the egg rather than the top of the egg uh, because uh, that uh, the, the tops of the eggs are much, much stronger than the sides. So you could get yourself in trouble if you try and do it on the pointy end of the egg. <laughs> uh,
1: Don't ever find yourself on the pointy end of an egg.
0: No, no. But the reason uh, these researchers are studying an egg and they're from Canada's McGill University is to work out how eggshells are simultaneously strong enough to stop being cracked from the outside because of course the major purpose of eggs is not to protect the wonderful white and yolk inside so we can have beautiful poached eggs in the morning uh, but actually to protect the animal that's uh, growing inside and so it has to protect them and resist fracture from outside forces yet be weak enough inside for chicks to break out when they are ready to be born Um, because that's how they get out the mama bird doesn't crack the... The egg but it's the chick cracking it from the inside when they're ready to go uh, so there's uh, some interesting uh, structural integrity around this egg and in fact it has to do with minute changes in the nanostructure of the shell that actually occurs during egg incubation hmm. so domestic chicken egg shells are about 95% calcium carbonate uh, but the remaining 5% includes a protein called osteopontin Uh, And this protein was actually originally discovered in bone. Um, And so they've been studying the way that that uh, protein changes and found that uh, there's a nanostructured mineral associated with the osteopontum protein that actually helps work out the shell's strength. Uh, So changes in the nanostructure around the shell both help the chick grow uh, as it gets bigger and also allow it to escape the shell later on. But during the incubation, the inside of the shell actually dissolves to give the developing embryo the calcium that it needs to form its own skeleton. At the same time, the process also weakens the shell just enough for the chick to break through when it hatches. Now, where's this research going to be applied? Well, it's actually going to work out in the egg industry. Uh, is probably the most likely area that uh, happens. Um, so the, all the same nutritious things in eggs that help chick embryos to grow also help make it uh, a very fertile growth field for pathogens. So, uh, and that's a problem. And there's salmonella, which is probably the biggest one around eggs that we all know of causing uh, food poisoning. And it's a huge problem in the egg industry, uh, especially uh, in the US. Uh, It seems to be much more prevalent than over here in Australia, uh, over in North America.
1: And why would that why is that
0: i'm not I'm not sure why that is. I just know that um in Australia we certainly haven't had a, a big salmonella scare in quite a while, um, whereas it seems to be much more common over there. Um, it may be to do with our egg uh, handling practices. Uh, I'm not sure uh, but uh, but uh, no, it is much bigger over there. Um, and so, of course, salmonella can cause food poisoning, uh, and that's because cracked eggshells or broken eggs can allow entry into the egg. It uh, allows pathogens to enter and cause that food poisoning. And about 10 to 20% of chicken eggs break or crack. Uh, So once we know how to analyse this nanostructure in the eggs and what it means in terms of function and how that also contributes to the hardness of egg, uh, the egg industry, for example, can use that information to genetically select for strains of chickens that consistently produce stronger eggs. Um, So in terms of... uh Laying chickens, they can start doing that selective uh, breeding uh, to pick the eggs that uh, the chickens that lay the stronger eggs, um, and then continue to uh, make eggshells stronger. Um, so it's a it's an a, Interesting study. Um, Eggshells in general are actually notoriously difficult to study by traditional means uh, because they easily break when they try to make a thin slice for imaging via electron microscopy. So these researchers are actually using new techniques and new equipment to try and study these eggshells.
1: So talking about the strength, you sort of said, I don't want to crack it on the pointy end of my head. Mm. Is that just because of shape that makes it stronger at the end, or is there... Like, is the structure of the shell at the end different to the edges? Yeah,
0: I'm not sure about that one. Um, I know uh, the the uh, rounded arch-like shapes of the eggs are certainly what contributes to its strength, um, but uh, I'm not sure why it uh, does, um, why it is stronger on the end. Maybe it's just a concentration there, or maybe it is that that shape's stronger. I haven't studied that one. <laughs> But, uh, but it's interesting that they're talking about the selective breeding here and how um, that might help them, you know, create, generate a stronger egg uh, through that selective process. And uh, I'm going to have a quick song break, but when I come back, I want to talk about a, uh, a different way to uh, create new uh, genes, because that's essentially what they're doing. They're finding chickens that have the right genes to create the stronger eggs um, through this selective breeding process by studying the eggshells.
1: Well, they're not creating new genes. Well, they're just no, sorry, they're amplifying working. the genes that they like.
0: That's right. They're, they're amplifying the effect indeed through yeah. those genes that are already in existence. But we do have a new way of creating new genes now. And, uh, it's rather than a
1: sewing machine. <laughs>
0: terrible <laughs> on that joke I'm going to stop talking we're going to throw to a break and when we come back we are going to have a look at how we do create new jeans uh, and edit those that are there but for now let's have a bit of music Fuzzy Logic here on 98.3 2XFM community radio through Canberra and surrounds Jill in the studio with me this morning and before the break Jill was talking about editing jeans on a sewing machine <laughs> which is a terrible pun. I should turn her mic on so you can hear her laughing at her own jokes. (laughs) Um, But uh, we were talking about the selective breeding around uh, chickens to help create stronger chicken eggs. Uh, But, of course, uh, selective breeding is just one way of editing genes. Now, with scientific advances, we can also edit genes in a much more uh, computer-like fashion almost uh, through a process called CRISPR. And I wanted to share, this is an old article from our Ask Fuzzy column, which is published every Sunday in the Canberra Times. And so I wanted to share an answer to the question of how do we edit genes? Uh, That uh, was prepared by Michael Watson, a PhD researcher at the Australian National Centre for the Public Awareness of Science. Sorry, not Michael, Michelle Watson. Beg your pardon, Michelle. Michelle Watson at uh, the Australian National Centre for the Public Awareness of Science. Answering the question, how do we edit genes? A new and effective, simple way to edit DNA is called CRISPR. Now, it's an acronym, C-I-R-S-P-R. It allows us to edit sections of DNA by adding, removing, or altering a sequence of genes. This process is how we can control the expression of different features of a plant or animal. Unlike other gene editing techniques, CRISPR achieves its accuracy by two key elements. An enzyme that causes a cut on both strands of DNA and a guide that allows it to target specific sections of the genome. Most DNA is double-stranded. CRISPR makes sure that both DNA strands are correctly edited uh, because they complement each other, those two strands. So you have to edit both sides to make sure that matches up again. And the new strands will be stably uh, inherited, making, making a long-lasting change to the organism's genetic makeup. CRISPR also has the ability to create gene drives. Uh, this means that instead of having approximately 50% chance of inheriting an edited gene, it now has close to a hundred percent chance rate. This is called Gene Drive Inheritance, and this feature is going to revolutionise the way we tackle problems. So that means when uh, creatures do reproduce, we obviously get 50% of the genes from each creature, but if we can force uh, certain genes to dominate, uh, then that Gene Drive Inheritance can help make change happen. Uh, Mosquito-borne diseases such as malaria cause millions of deaths worldwide each year. CRISPR could potentially prevent this by altering the DNA of the mosquito to make the mosquito unable to carry the parasites, viruses or bacteria which cause disease. This new mosquito would quickly spread through the local population because of the gene-driven inheritance. Uh, So this gene would then dominate the mosquito population. And research is already well underway and has had promising results so far. Gene editing and CRISPR can also play a major role in feeding the world's population. CRISPR helps alter the genetics of crops so they can grow under harsher conditions and with fewer resources needed to keep the plants alive. Scientists could also pack the plants with nutrients or change their growth behaviour so that they could potentially grow larger, faster and all year round. Due to CRISPR's accuracy and effectiveness, human gene editing, or human gene therapy, is poised to be the next medical breakthrough of this century. Already, gene editing therapies are on the market and are revolutionizing the health industry. However, there are key ethical concerns that must be discussed before these therapeutics become readily available to the public. So, really interesting uh way of gene editing there because we have been editing genes for years through selective breeding. Uh, that's something that, that we're talking about with the chickens. That's something that researchers have done, especially researchers at CSIRO. Uh, they've been doing that for years through some of their industrial research around farming and that sort of thing to create better grains, better fruit, better veggies and all those sorts of things.
1: Yeah, so one particular grain that they've um, created is called Barley Max, which is a... Barley grain, but to the max. So, which I, <laughs> barley I think Barley
0: to the max! Woo. No. No? Just, that, well, that's stuck. not where they
1: went. So, barley contains something great called resistant starch, which is really good for gut health. Um, but people aren't getting enough of it. And people don't change their diet easily. So, CSIRO actually came up with a way, instead of changing the people, we'll change the food. That's a lot easier. So... Uh, They use selective breeding to create Barley Max, which is four to five times higher in resistant starch than regular barley. So essentially they planted barley um, in their greenhouses, they went out to the crop, found the ones that had the highest resistant starch, bred them together, planted them, went out to the new crop, grabbed them, bred the best ones together, and so on and so forth for about 10 years to get this product, Barley Max.
0: Yeah, so it's not a quick process to make that happen uh, when you think about it. Ten years is a long time, whereas CRISPR is something that can speed it up uh, much more quickly. Uh, but it's just an interesting way when we start doing it uh, automatically like that rather than going through the natural processes. Well, not that it's natural reproducing certain species together, but it is a bit more it's of an a... an
1: enhanced natural process. Yeah,
0: it's an enhanced natural process compared to this... Uh, this what. CRISPR that's done in a lab. So there's lots of questions we certainly have to answer around CRISPR.
1: (laughs) And the scientists at CSIRO are using CRISPR for certain things, particularly looking at increasing the oil production from a lot of our crops. So canola oil plants. So we do grow them. We get a lot of canola oil, but they're actually using CRISPR to try and locate the genes that they need that produce the oil and how they can amplify them so they will produce more oil and you'll get... They've been able to do it quite successfully to tobacco plants. To get tobacco oil, but um, just because they're a really easy one to grow, they're now working on canola because that's more a useful oil.
0: Yeah, I was going to say we don't need more research isolating tobacco oil, do we? No, Uh, it's just to to help prove the concept. Yeah, they use it because
1: tobacco plants are quite easy to work with.
0: Yeah, interesting. Very interesting indeed. So there you go, CRISPR, the new future of uh, regenerating our DNA and generating new genes or new expressions to change the way. Plants, animals, people uh, are. <laughs> Interesting science there. Now, that one, as I said earlier, did come from our Ask Fuzzy column, which is every Sunday in the Canberra Times. Uh, if you do have a question that you want answered, you can send it to Fuzzy at zoho.com or tweet us at fuzzylogicsci, that's fuzzy Logic S C I, uh, and uh, we'll do our best to answer those questions. Today's article in uh, the Canberra Times uh, looks at. Uh, Asking a bit of the of question of what would our breakfast look like without science? And uh, this is a bit more opinionated than a lot of our Ask Fuzzy questions normally uh, because normally we're dealing in, in, in the facts and uh, what's uh, going on in the science world and trying to answer a, a factual question, whereas this one, uh, well, it is based in fact and it's based in true research, but Rod's taken a bit of uh, editorial license here and uh, is just trying to point out how important science is for us all. And that ties into an event that's taking place next weekend, uh, mentioned in the Article 2, which is the March for Science. Uh, Fuzzy Logic's going to be there, along with a a couple of our local uh, members of the legislature, Slembly.